that direction is, is undeniable. It's a question of how fast it will happen. And so I think in the next three to five years, two things uh, will drive the trend. The first is as schools refresh and replenish their hardware stack, which right now might be Chromebooks or Dell, you know, Dell uh, desktops in their computer lab, they, they will, and I would argue they should, incorporate a, a Vive and Oculus into those stacks as, as a demonstration tool, primarily for teachers, even more than for students to start, because teachers need to understand the, the power of this before they can really let their kids get on it. So one will be getting schools and a little bit of top-down teachers and principals and superintendents to embrace the technology. The second will be that the consumer side is going to push a lot of this. So PlayStation just came out with an amazing VR headset that, that plugs into your PS4, and that means that um, millions of kids are going to start to have these in their homes, yep. and that will drive demand to school boards, to principals, where parents are saying, right. "My kid can do X right. at home. Why can't he do? Why is he still getting Xerox, you know, uh, ditto sheets at school?" You're listening to the Getting Smart podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today, Tom talks with Seth Andrews. Seth is a former special education teacher who launched an important school network and became a tech advisor to the president. You'll learn why he's so excited about virtual reality as a groundbreaking technology. And because we couldn't help ourselves with the title, let's head on to Seth's awesome adventure. Seth Andrew, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Uh, Pleasure to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. At a recent conference, I heard you talk about uh, virtual reality and uh, that you had become, uh, uh, while working in the White House, really excited about its potential. I want to come back to that, but let's start with uh, Seth's awesome adventure in education. Long ago, you were a special education teacher. How and why did you become a special ed teacher? Uh, This is true. I still consider myself a little bit of a special education teacher, um, in part because uh, learning disabilities don't don't usually go away, and I uh, grew up with uh, dyslexia and dysgraphia and didn't really find my place in school until I was around 10, and my family got a very rudimentary Radio Shack computer, and it let me learn to type, which sort of helped me get over my dysgraphia in particular, and it changed the game for me. So it was both the intersection of technology and my interest in education that really kicked off by having this awareness of oh, interesting. who I was. As I didn't know that. And when I, you know, then started on a path of education that was more successful than the beginning of my path, uh, I got excited about um, building schools and building places that were safe. I mean, my middle school, in part because I hadn't um, really found my way until then, was a New York City public middle school with a thousand kids, uh, there were nine white kids. It was a place that was sort of in the middle of figuring out, um, as a school, its next, uh, sort of world, but Booker T. Washington was not yet a great school. And as a result, it was not safe or uh, dynamic or rigorous in most, uh, of the kids' education experiences. So in part of, uh, my excellent adventure was thinking for many years, starting in, in really middle school about what does it take to build a, a school, now a school network that is safe and rigorous and fun and joyous, but also serves all kids with all disabilities and all abilities. And where um, that that intersection was became eventually Democracy Prep. So talk about that uh, transition from being a teacher to uh, launching a school and then a network. Uh, It seems like a daunting transition. Like, how did it work? 
It is daunting, and uh, you know I don't want to minimize it, but the, you know at each step on the path, it didn't seem as daunting as it does now. Democracy Prep today is a hundred and ten million dollar a year organization with a thousand employees and a massive enterprise. But at the time, it was an idea. It was sort of how do you build one classroom in one school, and then you just grow from there. So, coming out of uh, undergrad with an education degree, I um, became a teacher and taught special ed and English and was passionate about my kids and my my classroom, but really frustrated by the systems and the structures that um, I was facing in traditional schools. Uh, having been a traditional public school kid my whole life, I thought that that was the place I wanted to make an impact. Uh, but two things happened. The first is that I followed my girlfriend to Korea, uh, and she is now my wife, so it was a good decision for that uh, reason, but also because I saw a totally different way of looking at education when I was in South Korea in 2000. Um, I just saw a different level of rigor and joy and expectations and respect for teachers and respect for teaching than I'd ever seen in American public schools. And I was working with kids who were poorer than my kids in Harlem. The kids in uh, uh, South Korea were at the bottom of the economic ladder there. This is before most of the explosion in the last 15 years in the Korean uh, technology uh, sector and economy. And so I just saw a different culture that for kids in poverty was a model of education that I thought we could export some of to uh, to the U.S. So when I came back, I taught for a couple more years uh, and got my school leadership master's degree and sort of got on a, a pretty typical path. But then I met a woman named Linda Brown, and the uh, Building Excellence Schools Fellowship was my segue from traditional schools and teaching to school leadership more formally. And this fellowship is really, I I still credit it for the reason that I'm in the charter sector and as passionate about it as I am today. Uh, And it's, you know, buildingexcellenceschools.org. People who want to build schools and build networks uh, should take a look. And after that, in 2005, we uh, were approved to open our first democracy prep. And as I said, we started with 12 staff and, you know, 120 kids on a third floor of a of a dysfunctional New York City public school uh, with four classrooms and basically got to work. And success breeds success. When you have great teachers in the classrooms, you get some good results, and that leads to some recognition, and then you are able to, to build and grow from there. And Democracy Prep now is, is doing great, and I've been able to shift because it was in such really strong, uh, capable hands with my successor, and Katie Duffy, that I could now take on some of these bigger policy questions and the exciting questions around what's next in education writ large. So that's the, the shortest version what? I can give you of the uh, excellent adventure. Let me underscore a couple of the things. So travel has been important in your life. and It, it is remarkable how, how sometimes travel is the best way for us to learn about our own culture when we can look at it through the eyes of another. You've brought some of that to democracy prep, right? Exactly. So, uh, I've personally, one of the things I loved about both being a teacher and an educator is the schedule. And, and that's not something you hear often, but, but we have to remember that the, the crazy agrarian schedule that we still use allows for lots of vacation time for educators uh, in big chunks. And that has let me travel to 63 countries around the world and seven continents and really has given me that perspective you describe of both our own culture and others and other education systems. And so in building Democracy Prep, I wanted to give that to some of our low-income kids. And so in our model, which at, at DP is a 100% publicly funded, so we don't uh, solicit or receive philanthropy for our students for the education for anything, we budgeted in probably the largest per capita field trip budget in the country. 
um, which includes the opportunity for our kids to travel to five continents before they graduate. And so not every kid makes all five wow. continents. Wow, that's really remarkable. Um, things, things they need to do to get there, uh, you know, in terms of both their behavior and their academic performance, but most kids get to a couple of continents before they graduate, and they're are sort of kids who show the best dream values or have been to five continents, and that is um, a program that is is just there, there's nothing like it for low income kids in the country. Uh, but we started to see some entire districts really move in this direction. For example, Kaya Henderson in Washington D.C. just launched a privately funded uh, program for uh, middle school kids in D.C. to travel abroad. And uh, I remember to this day watching Lorraine Monroe, one of the early pioneers in the education reform world talk about how her students from Harlem needed to walk into college campuses being comfortable talking to their peers who had been to the Eiffel Tower. And they, she needed right. her kids in Harlem to be able to say, oh, I remember when I was at the Eiffel Tower, it was raining. And that sentiment that the world can be yours and that you are an equal citizen in it is one that I think um, low-income kids at schools who, who don't have travel, who don't have some of these broader experiential elements miss. And so I think it's one of the reasons that Democracy Prep's college persistence rate has been so strong is that our kids have walked into right. college um, and 90% of them are now graduating, persisting in four-year institutions, which has been really one of the, the points of pride that I, I'm uh, most excited about is that persistence number. And, and I credit it largely to things like travel and, and experiences that our kids have had that are beyond right. the academic. Our friends at the University um, Academy in Kansas City, uh, who also value travel, have said the same thing, that these these kinds of experiences are what uh, boost their college enrollment and particularly uh, persistence rates. So that is exciting. Yeah, the, the, admissions, the admissions number ends up being a false indicator, and it often causes more problems than it's worth because graduating yeah. from high school, going to college, getting debt, and then not pers- not persisting or completing is worse right. than the not attending disaster. and having no debt. So we've got a trillion debt uh, dollars for kids, uh, for student loan debt in this country, and more than half of kids who start four-year programs don't graduate. So, you know, we could say there are $500 billion in debt out there today that are bad debt because they didn't actually lead to the result that the government wanted it to or the people who got into the um, college pipeline wanted it to. So persistence is the name of the game, and that's where my laser at Democracy Prep and and other projects has really been its focus. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and Tom just mentioned University Academy. To learn more about their work, head to Season 2, Episode 14, where Tom talks to the board chair and superintendent about why they agree with Seth that travel is so important. Now back to Seth's awesome adventure. Seth, we're studying um, leadership preparation right now. What, What would you say between your formal program the intermediary that you worked with, your fellowship, the informal learning, what what was the most important elements of your leadership preparation? Uh, great question, because I, I really did three different types of leadership training. Uh, and the, the formal, uh, a Harvard uh, degree in school leadership was unquestionably the, the least valuable and least helpful. Uh, and I love some of my friends and colleagues at, at Harvard as people, but as an institution that tried to prepare school leaders, it just failed on on almost every level. It was theoretical. It was not practical. We never once talked about student discipline or behavior or bathroom passes and things that when you want to be a principal of a real school, especially in an urban community, those are things that matter. And I spent a year and $60,000 not talking about any of them, but we talked about Frary and Dewey and 
lots of exciting philosophy. And so that is, I think, at the bottom of the pyramid or the bottom of the, the value uh, chain. It just really didn't add much for me. Uh, the second is um, building some schools, which was for me the, the, the catalyst. And the things there that made it work were, A, amazing mentorship, Sue Walsh, Linda Brown, people who've been doing this work forever, really taking you under their wing and, and helping you uh, get through the tough points. And I have more tough points than we can cover on this one, but that, that Linda and Sue were some of my first calls when you hit right. those, those tough marks, and especially in the early days. Um, and then the third uh, is experience. In the same way that travel is experiential for, for kids to sort of see the world, um, travel for school leaders is the experience that they need. So I visited during my BES fellowship 30 different schools, and this was the early days. So this is 2004. I'm seeing KIPP and North Star and Academy of Pacific Rim, and I'm seeing um, a couple of the early schools uh, that were in the district side, like uh, Frederick Douglass, which is Lorraine Monroe School, and so seeing those schools in action, doing a residency at Amistad, which is now Achievement First, I mean, those were the things that gave me the kind of, okay, that's what it looks like. That's what it feels like experience that weren't uh, theoretical or or um, philosophical, but were actual practical. Okay, I now know what it should feel like. And when I started my school leadership journey, I then knew what it was supposed to feel like, and especially when it felt wrong, I was the first to say, hey, this doesn't feel like what it did at, at Amistad when Desha led town hall. I need to, to change the town hall vibe somehow. And those kinds of um, hands-on experiences for leaders were, were super important. What did you learn about scaling democracy prep? Uh, two things. One is positive, one is negative. The, the positive is that this is not about money. This is not about um, uh, structures. There are enough charter laws. There's enough autonomy out there. You can run great schools in America today if you find the right markets and figure out the politics. You can you can do it. It is not a barrier. Um, and that's really uh, exciting because at the beginning of this work 10 years ago, I think people would have said, listen, the policy regulations and the, uh, the money are the problem. And I think democracy prep has proven that neither of those are uh, firm barriers. Um, the less optimistic reality is that the growth is linear. So we can serve six, 10,000 kids uh, with a world-class education to go to five continents, all the things we're talking about, um, but it grows at 10 to 20% a year. And even with right. federal public dollars and, and public dollars, I don't see a hockey stick ever emerging in right. the school building approach. And so you've seen some markets, New Orleans, D.C., Denver, and even New York, which is now 10% charter, see the growth. Um, but the barrier to growth is primarily leadership talent yep. uh, because the models we've built are so dependent on great leaders. Right. So the reason we can grow 10 to 20% is we have, you know, out of every 10 employees, one or two end up being an amazing leader. And that's probably the right ratio, and I don't think that ratio is going to change. It's not like all of a sudden out of every 10 teachers we hire, six or seven will become principals. They don't want to be, nor should they be. And so that linear growth sort of model is one that is exciting for the kids who are in the system, but it has not yet transformed yeah. most American schools. And in a city like New York, where I grew up and where I sort of see myself doing most of my, my work, uh, it's 1.1 million kids, and at a even 20% growth off of 10,000 for the next 100 years was going to barely be there. So that's not the kind of time frame I'm interested yep. in. No, it's frustrating. I, I have said that um, that new school development, and uh, particularly in school networks, be they charter or uh, district-serving networks like Big Picture and New Tech, are the most important invention in the last 20 years. 
the the frustrating thing is that it is we we have learned how to open great new schools, but it is uh, frustratingly slow and expensive. It's uh, linear, and so it can't be the the full solution. Right, and and it is it is a solution, and that for you know millions of kids now across the country has changed their right. entire life trajectory. So I'm not minimizing the impact. I'm just saying that. We no, have, no question, uh, but it's a lot 10% of not 50%. Exactly. And it is also yeah. that the problem is growing often in an exponential way while the solution right. is growing in a linear way. So the, the, the challenge right. is now we, poverty, the challenge now is... We, uh, we fast forward and uh, Barack Obama, or at least the uh, OSTP head, Tom Khalil, calls and says, Seth, we need your advice, and you end up in the White House. So <laughs> how, how did you become a, a White House advisor, and what did you do there? Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Tom because he's one of those great, uh, wise sages who uh, has been in this work for far longer than I. Uh, and I ended up first because of Arnie Duncan, actually. A friend of mine had been following the work at Democracy Prep uh, and had me meet with Arnie to go on a trip with him to talk about school reform in Puerto Rico. And we were talking about all the things we're talking about today, school development and teacher training and leader training and Arnie said, can you uh, come and join our team to focus on leadership training and technology? And uh, I said, I, you know, I'm not planning to leave Democracy Prep, but when the secretary calls you, you say yes. And so I started first working with um, the the U.S. Department of Education and I launched a couple of initiatives there, uh, things like Future Ready Schools and uh, work on ConnectEd uh, that right. got the attention of the White House. And at one event that was hosted in the East Room with the president. Um, I was sitting next to a woman named Megan Smith, and Megan is the, um, at that point, newly appointed chief technology officer of the United States of America. And we started a conversation about the event and why I thought it was really exciting and how we were going to use technology to scale education. And she followed up, much to her credit, to say, you know, I've got a great team at the White House that's, that are technologists primarily, but we need more folks who are educators primarily with a technological interest and come and join us. And so two years ago, I was able to uh, to join the White House and start focusing on ed tech and uh, civic tech was the other part of my portfolio. So efforts to, uh, you know, engage Americans in democracy, which now uh, in 2016 is even more important, I think, than it was in uh, 2014 when I started. Yeah, unquestionably. Um, so you must have a long list of things that you learned while you were there. How would you describe your takeaways as you are thinking about uh, leaving? Oh, that is that is a long list and a, uh, a a challenging one because I do think that, that November 8th is a demonstration that um, we, as both the Obama administration and, and government in general, uh, have not done a good enough job of engaging Americans in our civic life. And so shifting from, you know, the, the school topic for a second, just to say, like, you know, what, the reason I founded democracy prep as opposed to generic prep uh, is that I think the reason we have great public schools, the reason we have um, a system of of schools to educate our citizens uh, is so that they'll be able to participate in the life and direction of our country in a way that everybody can participate. And unfortunately, 100 million Americans chose to not participate this cycle in the presidential election that probably couldn't have been more stark, uh, and yet 100 million eligible Americans said, you know what, I'm not going to bother to turn out and vote. I'm not going right. to get engaged here. And so that, to me, is yeah, is a really disappointing. A lesson that's both disappointing 
frightening and scary um, because our, our democracy is fragile. This is not a guarantee that America is America. Right. In fact, it's almost it's almost an impossibility that America became America. With right. Hamilton in the news, it, you know, it reminds us how fragile and lucky we were to build a democracy this strong. And the the unraveling is when uh, so few people think that it is the way to engage. And so I, I really hope that right. one of my biggest lessons and, and some of the work I'm going to be doing next includes getting more people uh, involved in our democracy and technology is a tool that I, I think and can right. and help to make Jeff, that possible to, and scale it. Well, I have to add, since we're both interested in civic tech and ed tech, that um, I have been a platform optimist. And now that we live, learn, work, play, and shop on platforms, there, some of us had this um, hypothesis that once we all lived on platforms, there'd be a set of largely inarguable facts and that um, truth and reason would rise to the top. And we have, unfortunately, particularly in this election, on both sides, seen uh, that the opposite has been uh, true. The the rise of uh, fake news and misinformation, um, the fact that we all live in these information gullies prone to flash floods of garbage um, <laughs> is uh, really, really disappointing to me and must be to you as well. Massively. And, and I think you're right. It is both sides. And, you know, I, I had to remind somebody who was ranting to me about fake news on the right. And I said, have you ever read the, the sort of the left review of charter schools? Because this is a charter school supporter, because that's right. far more fake news than you know, the, the alt-right has put out, uh, and they've been doing it for 10 years. So this is a fake news problem and the civic engagement problem yep. is not partisan. It, no, is, the, it is everybody and everywhere, around. and it it is it is deeply dangerous. And so I'm not, uh, you know, the, the opportunity of a platform of scale of technology is, is simply that. It's about scale and growth, um, but it can replicate good practices or it can replicate bad practices. So one of the things that I think the Obama administration was very aware of, and we need to be cautious about maybe going into the new administration is the idea of guardrails. And guardrails is a phrase that we use a lot in the regulatory environment in the administration to make sure that our lowest performing kids or our lowest performing communities, um, our lowest performing schools had support and structure and accountability uh, and that we weren't just leaving it to the, the, the market unchecked to produce high quality schools for low income kids because that just isn't going to happen and hasn't yet. Yep. So those guardrails and that level of, of of accountability and, and trade-offs uh, is something that we need to, to make sure in the new administration we see a lot more of, and, and I think there are ways to do that. And I think that there are, you know, there, there are some people that we can partner in the new administration who will pick up on those themes. Uh, we just have to create uh, the, the thoughtful conversation around what it looks like in a, in a DeVos uh, world that is different than an Arnie Duncan, John King world. And I think there's a lot of overlap. We just shouldn't let the, um, the the partisan divide stop the good ideas that I, I think were, are the areas where we have overlap. And I, I, you know, my last thought on that is simply there were a number of ideas in the Obama administration that, that myself and all of our colleagues put forward to Congress um, to say, listen, you asked for this. Here's a bill that incorporates your ideas and your wishes into this proposal, including on things like edu education technology. Uh, Computer Science for All is one of my initiatives at the White House I'm most proud of, and you know, we, we put in a call for a $4 billion request that was based on the requests from Republican members of Congress to emphasize technology and you know, job-ready skills. 
uh, and yet it got no reception, not because it was a bad idea, but because it was partisan presented by the president in his budget request. So we need to move away right. from that paradigm and hopefully get to a place where uh, the ideas and the, the future of the, the, the health of the country is first and the politics are second. So where, where'd your interest in uh, virtual reality come from? And where's, where's that headed? Uh, so it, it is somewhat by accident, um, you know, for anybody who, who listens to the podcast who hasn't tried Google Cardboard, it's $3 on your phone, and it will give you the entry-level gateway drug to VR. And certainly was my, my case. I tried it, and I just sort of saw immediately the potential for what this could do to classrooms to be able to take kids to the theme of travel and transport them anywhere in the world immediately was something I've always wanted to do and don't want to have to put them on planes to do so. So uh, that was where I sort of saw this intersection between travel and tech and VR and cardboard. And then as I got a little bit deeper and I started to put on things like the Oculus Rift and the Vive, it's not just a supplement. It's actually a whole new modality of education. And in my first looking at cardboard, it was a supplement to a great teacher who now has this extra you know, tool in her toolkit. And now uh, Vive is a, a way of thinking about educational uh, experiences in a massively different way. And so I started playing around with it and was um, lucky enough to, to put together a team that uh, applied for a new school called Washington Leadership Academy in Washington, D.C. that had virtual reality at its core. And we applied for the Lorraine Powell Jobs-sponsored uh, XQ grant, and she was kind enough to, to give us $10 million to now experiment with some of these ideas. And the school is now only a few months old, but we're already seeing just a, a different way of learning for kids. Um, using VR and AR than I think um, what we imagine. And we've always been looking for the, you know, what Michael Horn calls the, the real disruption. Uh, the the thing that has been missing uh, is the tool to actually help it disrupt. And I think VR could be that. And, that, you know, there's been a lot of hype, so I don't want to overhype it more than it already is. But I do think that anybody who puts on a Vive and doesn't see what is possible, I think, uh, there, there's something missing because it, it is almost instantaneous for the people that I've uh, been able to sh give them that experience. How much of a student's day do you see uh, either participating in or informed by an AR um, or VR experience? So, uh, you know, I think that the, these are all questions of time uh, because in – 50 years, that, that will be a, a merged or mixed reality. So, right. in almost 100%. Life, we can't, it, it, yeah. it, is, it, is, it will be 100%. I mean, it will be in our contact lens. Yeah. It will be basically part right. of we, the, the idea of a cyborg is not science fiction anymore because I've started to right. see some of that technology. Uh, I got to go see Magic Leap, for example, which is some really great augmented technology. There, there, that direction is, is undeniable. It's a question of how fast it will happen. And so I think in the next three to five years, two things uh, will drive the trend. The first is as schools refresh and replenish their hardware stack, which right now might be Chromebooks or Dell, you know, Dell uh, desktops in their computer lab, they, they will, and I would argue they should, incorporate a, a Vive and Oculus into those stacks as, as a demonstration tool, primarily for teachers, even more than for students to start, because teachers need to understand the, the power of this before they can really let their kids get on it. So one will be getting schools and a little bit of top-down teachers and principals and superintendents to embrace the technology. 
The second will be that the consumer side is going to push a lot of this. So PlayStation just came out with an amazing VR headset that, that plugs into your PS4, and that means that um, millions of kids are going to start to have these in their homes. Yeah. And that will drive demand to school boards, to principals, where parents are saying, right. my kid can do X right. at home. Why can't he do – why is he still getting Xerox, you know, uh, ditto sheets at school? And so I right. think that you're going to see a little top-down, a little bottom-up. And I think in three to five years, most kids in middle-class schools will start to see uh, VR incorporated into their day. Um, small small pieces, but – Supplemental, and then um, in five to ten years, and so actually the key there I said was middle class schools. So we have to make sure both as policy and as guardrails, as I was describing before, that low-income kids get access to these tools too. This is not a cost prohibition. This is a will prohibition, right? The Vive costs $700, and uh, that is right. an affordable item for every school in America, even if they think that they are in poverty. Um, so we, we can do this uh, financially. It's a question of whether we have the – the will and the vision to do it. Uh, and then the, the next part of the equation is what are the, the, the demand functions that are going to create an ecosystem of content that doesn't today exist? So if you look for VR education content on the, the Steam store and Oculus, you don't find very good stuff. There's some journalistic stuff that's wonderful, but, but educationally it's not um, a robust marketplace yet. So my thesis at the moment is that course choice will start to emerge in the uh, the next four years as the demand function that will push for people to create new educational tools in VR. Course choice being the idea that um, I should be able to take a course that might not be offered at my high school, and whether that's chemistry or physics or calculus or an advanced STEM subject or just, you know, a deeper look into American history than your basic American history class is going to cover – those experiences are going to start to get built in tools like VR. I'm working on a few right now with some colleagues at Brown University around the American Revolution, for example. And that future where those experiences exist um, is going to be coupled with this course choice world where you can now see um, public funds going toward not just school vouchers, which for rural kids has no benefit, but for course right. vouchers where they can now say, I will take a course on the American Revolution or chemistry in a virtual reality environment, and the, the federal voucher might pay for that course uh, so that the local school district doesn't have to. Once those dollars start to flow to the course providers, that's where the innovation, I think, is going to really exponentially increase as opposed to uh, what we've seen so right. far, which is still like, you know, dribs and drabs. And let's, let's add uh, world languages here, right? There's no reason – even with today's sort of low-tech um, online learning opportunities that every school doesn't offer uh, at least the top six world languages, and in the very near future, the ability to do that in a fully immersive I environment where you could select dual language in two very different languages um, is, I, I think, a, a real gift. So, so just that, to maybe come full circle as we wrap up, democracy prep, uh, teaches Korean as its mandatory foreign language. So every democracy prep student uh, in high school learns Korean for four years as a mandatory foreign language. Uh, we did that because, among other things, uh, every kid came in with zero, and so we were able to start them on a pretty clear sequential path towards language mastery in four years. And uh, right. it was something that that proved our kids could learn anything. I mean, we've got black and Latino kids across the country who are able to um, – master Korean in four years, there's no question now that that is possible. 
what VR and, and AR will allow us to do is um, not require that to be one language, but have also the talent um, through artificial intelligence that can get you a great deal of the way down the road uh, towards language mastery. And so the combination of VR, AR, and AI, it means that uh, language instruction, but I'm arguing any type of instruction will really get you um, massive improvement. Seth, let's check in uh, in the fall, uh, maybe with a visit at uh, Washington Leadership Academy on how that's going and get the next chapter in Seth's awesome adventure. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to talk to you about it. It is an adventure, and for anybody who listens, like this is the most fun you can have teaching and, and teaching and learning and the intersection of technology right now is really both fulfilling and uh, meaningful work for kids who need us. So, uh, you know, come, come and join us in the fray and reach out. If you want to come visit the school, we have an open door and we're actually making our, our all of our processes open source at WLA now. So you can go to WashingtonLeadershipAcademy.org and we, find our school development plan, our curriculum, everything we have, we open source. We'll include that in the show notes. Seth Andrew, thanks for being on the Getting Smart Podcast. We appreciate your work. Well, thank you, Tom, for all you do. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, head to the Getting Smart Podcast iTunes channel and rate us. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Megan signing off.